Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Avi Havivi's weekly Sidur class. We're talking about constructing a Jewish theology, elements of a Jewish theology, as they may inform our davening and they may inform the Sidur. And we're talking about rabbinic theology, this theology or ideas about God put forth by the rabbis, which means the classical rabbis of the Mishnah, Talmud, and Midrash, late antiquity, 200 to 800 of the common era, whatever you want to call it, Talmudic Judaism. Um, and I'm going to start this week with a series of a few sessions about how the sages thought about I will call it God's complexity. The idea that God is not always the same, that God does not appear or present to us always the same, uh, but that God has different aspects or sorry, I want to say God has different aspects. God appears to have, appears to us to have different aspects, sometimes changing, sometimes in conflict with each other. Um, I think I think these ideas are sort of the forerunner of Kabbalah in some sense, which talks a lot about the inner dynamic of God, the different aspects of God. I don't want to call it parts. Um, and of course, Rambam would have totally disagreed with that. We'll get to Rambam. So we're going to start uh, talking today about how sometimes God appears or seems to function differently at different times. And we'll start off with kind of a, what will seem relatively simple to you, but only because it's familiar, because you've heard it a zillion times before, about God having aspects of uh, strict judgment and God having aspects of mercy. What we're, what is familiar to us as God's midat hadin and midat harachamin. That sometimes God appears to be judging, judgmental, their rules. And if the rules are violated, there will be a punishment from God. We're familiar with that, with that idea from the book of Deuteronomy. We talk a little bit about it in Heschel's ideas in the prophets. Um, but that God is also merciful and compassionate. And sometimes even though human beings deserve, might be seen to deserve punishment, God of God's own internal volition decides to not be punishing, but to be compassionate and forgiving. Midat Hadin and Midat Harachami. Um, of course, when I woke up this morning, five minutes, uh, not that, sorry, I'm going to start the sentence again. Five minutes before class, 15 minutes before class this morning, it occurred to me, and this happens a lot, and I hate this as a teacher, like, oh, there are two more things on my sheet that I should have included, really important passages, which I didn't. So I'll try to tell you what they are, and I'll try to put them in later today so that if you look at it online, you will find these passages. Um, and I'm going to screen share. And then the next few weeks, we're going to talk about other aspects of God's, let's call it internal complexity, that God um, appears to us not as the same thing all the time. Okay, so... We're coming up two more weeks. Kitisa, Parshat Kitisa, the sin of the golden calf. 
And, and God says to Moses, I'm going to wipe them all out. And Moses says, no, 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 don't do that. And then Moshe said, and it says, okay, I'm going to forgive them. And then Moshe says, well, how am I know? I, I want to know, I want to know what you're really about, God. And then God passes before Moshe and God says these things about the essence of God. The famous passage, Hashem Hashem El Rachum Vechanu. Right? So God passed before, is it from Exodus, if you're looking at a Bible at home, Exodus, Sefer Shmot, chapter 34, Pasuk 6 to 7. By the way, just so you know the way the trope is, it seems to be that God is saying this, not Moshe, but that is open to interpretation and debate. Is Moses grasping God's essence and Moses is saying this? Or when God passes before him, is God saying this? Um, and the commentators debate about that. But the essence of God is Hashem Hashem El Rachum Vechanun, Erech Hapayim Verav Chesed Vehemet, merciful, compassionate, patient, full of love and faithfulness. We know all that stuff, right? Notzer Chesed Lalafim, extending kindness to the south. It, uh, the Hebrew seems to mean to thousands, but in context it means to the thousandth generation. Meaning if you have done good, God will love your offspring for a thousand generations. No say avon vafesha forgiving sin, transgression, etc. But vinake lo yinake, but at times not forgiving, pokate avonavot albanim albanevanim alshileshim valribeim. But God punishes down to the fourth generation. Of course, we know the sages Chazal, when they snipped this out of the Torah and gave it to us in the liturgy, they ended it with Vinake, right? A great ad of a great act of chutzpah, which then makes it mean it actually totally makes it mean the opposite. God is merciful for a thousand generations, forgiving sins, no se avon, vafesha vechata'a, vinake, and acquitting. Okay, or remitting here in this English translation, even though, of course, the phrase in the Torah is vinake lo yinake, and surely God does not forgive at certain times, right? So for sins, so what's the juxtaposition here of the two aspects of God in the Torah? If you did something, uh, acts of goodness are remembered by God for a thousand generations, whereas sin is remembered by God only for four generations. Okay? So God is patient and loving. Doesn't mean that God forgives everything. By the way, the passage that I forgot to include was from Ezekiel, Yechezkel, who later says uh, the opposite of this. He says, nope, 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 not true. Every person is punished or rewarded for their own sin, for their own good things, and it does not carry to a next generation. The prophet Ezekiel Yechezkel argues with Exodus, as it were. I will include, try to include that passage later today and put it up in the sheet. Okay, but this is Exodus's formulation. So God has aspects of mercy and aspects of, uh, we, we don't like to, we don't like to use this word in modern times when we talk about God, but punishment. Okay. Can't, can't avoid that. Okay. And the prophet Micha, Micah says a version of this, but only the merciful part. Okay. And by the way, you probably know Hashem Hashem El Rachum Vechanun 
is called by the sages God's 13 attributes of mercy, right? And they have a whole system of in this um, Hashem is one, Hashem is one, El Rachum is another one, Vechanun is another one, Erechlai, et cetera, et cetera. They have a way of enumerating how there are 13 aspects of God in this um, verse, these two verses that are merciful, and they say what each one means in simpler terms. Um, the sages said that Micha has an alternative version of 13 attributes of God's mercy, which correspond to the first 13. We're not going to go into that or count them because it's complicated. But here's what Micha says. Who is a God like you? Forgiving, literally it means carrying sin, meaning it's as if instead of you carrying the sin, God carries it for you so that you don't have to be punished. Forgiving sin, overlooking transgression for the remnant of God's people. That's us. God does not hold on to anger forever because God loves graciousness. So God will take us back in love, quashing our iniquities. I just love that word for the lawyers among us, quashing. I'm pretty sure no one in, no non-lawyer ever uses the word quashing in regular daily discourse, quashing our iniquities, throwing them into the, throwing all our sins into the depths of the sea, and that this is an act of faithfulness with Jacob and loyalty or loving kindness for Abraham. Um, by the way, because of the imagery of where our sins go, this is the part of our liturgy that we say when? Once a year? I think Michael's trying to say it, but he didn't unmute. Yom Kippur. Uh, yeah, sort of. Close to Yom Kippur. When the, when the goat is sent out. Okay. How about the ocean? What do we do that has to do with the ocean? Yeah, it's, it's for Tashlich. So this is what we say during Tashlich because of the imagery of our sins should be thrown into the ocean. So Tashlich is a, uh, is an enactment, as it were, of that line that we do. Um, and it is in fact, um, part of the Haftarah also. Michael's correct, right? I guess it's in, in Shabbat Shuvah, I think. Okay. So yes, this is part of our Yom Kippur liturgy. Um, it is also very, uh, specifically, hold on, let's get rid of all this other stuff. So passage one from Shmot says, God is sometimes forgiving, sometimes punishing, okay? Forgiving, loving to the thousandth generation, punishing only to four generations. Micha goes a step further. It says, God forgives sin. We had no say avon vafesha. In Micha, we have no say avon veover alpesha. And, God, God self is compassionate and gets rid of sins by throwing all the sins into the ocean, which I think is meant, uh, I don't think Micha was thinking of Tashach. I think Micha was trying to use a metaphor to mean get rid of those sins forever so they'll never be seen again. So Micha has a change. Micha is not talking about the punishment for later generations. And Yechezkel, the prophet, takes this further in the passage that I forgot to include. Okay, so there's God who sometimes punishes, God who sometimes forgives. God can choose to forgive and overlook sin so that God doesn't punish. Okay, uh, let's look at how the sages kind of worked up this idea. Um, one passage which we did, I think, last time or the time before, when we talk about God can be seen, okay? Uh, Babylonian Talmud, we'll have to change that. That's Tractate Brachot 7a. Another mistake. Sorry. 
Um, how do we know that God prays? Because it says, I will make, when they come to my holy mountain, I will cause them to rejoice in the house of my prayer, not their prayer, my prayer, right? This is how we know that God prays. What does God pray? God prays, May my mercy overrule my anger so that I will be kindly to my children. That I will enter before them. And it's not clear what that means. We might have a better idea of it when we look at the next couple of passages. Um, within the letter of the law. Beyond the boundary of the law. It's actually the metaphor in Hebrew is the opposite of English. In English, it's please go beyond the letter of the law. In Hebrew, it's lifnim, within the letter of the law, meaning I'm not going to go all the way to the law to prosecute you. I'm going to go within it, less than that. That's, that would be a better translation. Less than the letter of the law. So God's prayer is... May my compassion conquer my anger, meaning God is depicted here by Rav as having, I dare I say it, you can just say, now, you can just say, it's all metaphor, it's all metaphor, it's all metaphor. I don't mind if you say that. That's really what Rambam would say, right? But it says, God has an inner emotional life. And God's prayer is, I hope, we we pray, may May it be our, the will before God. So what is God going to say? May it be my will before me, right? That when I feel angry, when I'm angry and I want to punish because they sinned, that my compassion will prevail over my anger, right? So that I can respond to B'nai Israel compassionately and judge them with less than the stringency that they might deserve. Everyone follow that? So God has an inner emotional state here, which is changeable, which is dynamic, which has multiple aspects. And God says, I want to change from being angry to being compassionate. Presumably, if I'm angry, I'm going to punish them for their sins, right? But I want to not punish. So this is uh, a, I'm going to call it a midrashic, Description of God's internal life, which describes how God could do what the prophet Micha says, right? How does God forgive and not hold on to anger? Okay, so God says, I hope that my internal sense of compassion will triumph over my anger so that... um I will be able to behave, to behave not according to the strict letter of the law. I'm going to pause for, I'm going to stop sharing so I can see y'all, a small but mighty group. Any question or comment about that or thoughts or reactions? Larry, you're muted. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm on my phone and it's, no, I'm, 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 you're good. You're good. Go ahead. I, there's a word and I can't think of it which means creating God in the image of man. I believe that word is anthropomorphism, although Heschel would say this is anthropopathism. Not that we depict God's form in the image of human, but we depict God's emotional state in the image of humans. Go on. 
I'm, yeah, I'm just overwhelmed by how much that is. This, this is because yeah. how yeah. many of us, especially with regard to our children, haven't uttered exactly that prayer. And we're here, we're here. We, we think that God is going to do exactly the same. That's my only comment. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yes, it's striking. And of course, it's very easy to, I mean, what did Chazal actually believe when they said this midrash? What did Rav actually believe? I, I don't know what Rav actually believed. Okay. So when they're saying this, Rav is saying it, they're quoting it in the Talmud. Do they know it's a metaphor? Are they, are they saying, look, I know God isn't like this, but I'm going to tell you a little Mysala about God as if God were a human parent to explain how this thing that the prophet Micha talks about actually happens. Like if God were like a human, again, our modern assumption is that the sages are thinking, they're thinking, if God were like a human, which of course God is not, how would this work? So I, I just think the, which of course God is not anything like a human. I just think that is our modern assumption, which is informed by, um, um, medieval philosophy, which Chazal we're not up to yet. So I don't know. Yes. And we're going to see another couple of passages like this right now. So let us go back to the screen sharing, which passages would make it even more anthropo, not just pathic, but morphic. Okay. Uh, Midrash Breshi Rabbah. Okay. When God went to create the world, by the way, verse two, there's a comment on verse two, uh, 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 not for, I don't remember what verse it is, number in, in Genesis chapter one. God says, let us make humans in our image, na'aseh, plural. And of course the says, who is na'aseh? Who is us? Well, who is around? There were angels around. By the way, does anyone know when the sages think angels were created? What day? Shout it out if you know. Two. So the Midrash says angels were created on day two. So the angels had an internal debate, just like, you know, the president's cabinet, the prime minister's cabinet, the king's court. Some of them said, don't create humans. Other ones said, create humans, right? And be, uh, what's the verse in Psalms that proves that? Chesed ve'emet nifgashu. Mercy and truth met, but here it's interpreted to mean compassion and truth fought with each other. Met means like this. They clashed. Okay. Chesed, mercy, who is here, uh, um, depicted, personified as, I guess, a sort of angel said, create the human because the human will be full of compassion. The human will do all kinds of compassionate things. Truth, the angel of truth, the personified capital T truth said, don't create him because he's going to be a total liar. He lies. How do we know humans are, are going to lie? Because their lips are moving. Okay. So the angels are arguing with each other. And what did God do? God, uh, this is quite audacious. God took truth or emet and he threw it down to the ground. Like there's an argument. God, the angels are arguing. God takes one of them and throws them out. How do we know God threw them out to the ground? Because there's a verse in Daniel saying, and you, and you threw earth to the ground. Okay. And then it goes on. God, the angels say, God, what are you doing? A truth is part of your signet ring. 
And he says, okay, truth will spring back up from the earth. While the angels are, then there's a little coda added to this midrash, another midrash added to this kit, midrash. Rav Huna, the rabbi of, of uh, Sepphoris, says, Tzipori, while they were arguing, what did God do? God created human beings and said, sorry, no point in arguing anymore. I did it already. Kind of a, Larry, is that anthropomorphic? Is that anthropomorphic enough for you? <laughs> okay. Um, so they're basically four. So here in the last midrash, we had internal forces of God. Okay. My mercy and my anger. In this midrash, maybe I should have done them in reverse order. I'm going to move them in reverse order. We have these are forces external to God. They're imagined as angels. We could say that is a midrashic personification of abstract ideas. I don't know if the midrash would think it's an abstract personification or if the midrash would say, no, 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 that's really what happened in heaven. There's an angel called compassion. There's an angel called truth. They argued with each other about whether or not humans should be created. And God threw one of them out. And while the angels were arguing, God created humans and saying, too late, discussion over. So here, those clashing forces, and I am cognizant of the fact that truth is not the same as um, Midat Hadin attribute of judgment okay there's elsewhere in the in the talmud where emet means judging the thing the way it means it's supposed to be judged without any compassion for anyone okay and we're going to see this in another passage in the sifrei another midrash this is on va'et hanan parsha va'et hanan in deuteronomy uh god punished me at that time says moses saying you can't go to the land so i pleaded with god saying hey god you showed me your your greatness and your mighty hand and who is like you and da da da. Moses really piles it up. And so the Midrash says, what does each phrase mean in what Moshe is saying? Mighty hand. What is hachazaka? Here, here's the yad hachazaka with my cursor. God showed me. Moshe says, God, you showed me your mighty hand. What is mighty? Chazaka. What is it that is mighty or powerful about God? Sha'atakovesh. Berachamim et midat hadin. Uh, by the way, this kovesh is the same word as the prophet Micha saying, Yichbosh avonotenu. God will quash our sins. In this case, it probably really means quash the punishment for our sins. Like a judge, I'm, I'm taking it a step further. We'll see how the Midrash does take it a step further, like a judge saying, I'm going to quash that motion. You have a punishment, but I'm going to quash it. Okay? It's the same word, yichbosh. What is God's might? Might. What is your power? That you, with your compassion, conquer or quash. Here it's called midat hadin, the attribute of justice or judgment. Or fairness. Fairness means you get what you deserve. How do we know that? From the verse in Micha that we read. Okay. And Moshe says, Asher mi'el bashamayim uva'aretz. Who is, who is like you? 
God, who in the whole heavens and earth is like you? Rhetorical question, meaning, of course, no one. And what does that aspect, what does that mean according to the Midrash? That God's attributes is not like the king's attributes. All right. Human attributes, okay, any ruler who's higher up from that ruler can overturn that ruler's rulings. We know that, right? You know, there's a local court and the state Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court, and that's why there's a case about can Trump run for office and the Colorado Supreme Court decided one thing and then the case is going to go before uh, the, the federal Supreme Court, the U.S., right? Because we understand that system, that there's lower judging and higher judging, right? But you, who is like you, you are the highest authority God who could quash your ruling, okay? As it says in Job, he is, God is singular, and so who could, um, I don't know, Turned God back. Okay. And Rabbi Huda ben Bava says a parable, right? It's like a person who's written down in the king's bad list. No matter how much you bribed, you couldn't get yourself off the bad list. But you in the, and Isaiah says, you do, you people do tshuva and I accept it. And here we're quoting a different verse from the prophets connoting totally eradication or wiping out of the sin. Um, Terry, could you please um, mute yourself? Sorry. Um, that's okay. In Micha, the image was throwing it into the ocean. In Isaiah, the image is wiping it away like a cloud, like the mist evaporating. Okay? I can cause sin to just evaporate. Right? So human rulers, there's always someone higher. There's no one higher than God. So what does God do to overrule, to get you off the bad list? God can cause sin to evaporate. Uh, another passage from the Talmud. What does God do all day long? Well, it's a 12-hour day. God puts in a 12-hour day. The first three hours, God studies Torah. The second three hours, God judges the whole world. But kevan shiro'esh and chayev olam klaya. Once God sees that the world deserves to be destroyed, God, and here is where the human image is intensified, God gets up, omeid mikisei hadin, God gets up from the throne of judgment, the yoshev al kisei rachamin, and God sits on a different throne. I'm in my court here, I got different thrones. I got my judging throne, I sit on that for three hours. Once God realizes that, whoa, the world is bad. I should destroy the whole world. At that point, God gets up from God's throne of judgment and goes and sits on a different throne, the throne of mercy. That would be at 12 noon in a 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. day, right? So God gets up and changes thrones at the end of those three hours. So again, what's the idea? The idea is that according to Midat Hadin, the attribute of Justice, fairness, deciding the outcome the way it should be decided according to the rules. The world ought to be destroyed. It's sort of the flip side of Emmet saying, truth saying, humans should never be created. Right? In all fairness, this is what this view is, 
the world is at least 51% sin and God should destroy the whole world like God did in the Torah at the time of the flood. Okay? And the only reason God does not do that is because God quashes or relinquishes some aspect of justice or judgment or equity or fairness and says, instead, I'm going to be merciful. We had the passage in Brachot that says that's God's prayer. May I be able to do that? Here we have a very concrete image that God gets up from one throne and sits on a different throne. By the way, what I haven't done, I'm going to see a couple of my favorite Talmudists this weekend, and I will ask them. I'm curious to know, is there any basis in reality in this image? Like, did, you know, did Greco-Roman kings actually had different thrones. Did they say, I'm going to go sit on the judgment throne now because I'm going to judge a case? So I don't know that. I'd be interested to know that. Or did the sages really just invent this image of that there's different seats for God? And one final one, bringing it back to what Michael brought up, the high holidays, right? I mean, what did God do in the last three hours? Oh, uh, sorry. Then, then isn't merciful for three hours. Um, in the, in the third three hours, God feeds the whole world. Okay. Takes care of all everyone's sustenance. And in the fourth three hours from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m., God re- chills out and relaxes. God does not watch YouTube videos or anything like that or the latest series on TV. God plays with Leviathan. Like what might you do in your home chilling out? You might play with your, 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 your feisty, energetic labradoodle puppy. Okay. God plays with Leviathan. Here, fetch boy. Okay. So we're not going to talk more, talk, talking about anthropomorphism. Okay. Here's the Midrash. Here's another passage about the chairs, the thrones, specifically to the high holidays. We say this, this line of Psalms right before we blow the shofar, the shofar, Allah Elohim Bitruah. Hashem Bekol Shofar. Now, uh, I haven't given you passages about this, but you probably know that there are different names for God in the Bible, and the sages talk about what do these different names connote, and one theory is that Elohim connotes God's aspect of Midat Hadin, attribute of justice, and Yud, Hey, and then Vav, Hey, God's four-letter word, translated in English, Bibles very often is Lord, right? We say it as Adonai or Hashem, um, connotes God's attribute of mercy. So what does the verse mean when it says, Allah Elohim betruah, God Elohim went up at the shofar blast. Hashem went up at the sound of the shofar. When God sits down on the judgment throne, he first goes to do justice. How do we know that? Allah Elohim Bitruah. It's sort of like God enters the throne room ready to do justice. Where is God sitting? Presumably on the justice throne. But what do we do? We blow the shofar. At the moment when we take out our shofars and blow shofar before God, Omeid Mikisei Hadin, Vyoshev Bikisei Rachamim. Same thing that in the last Midrashic passage we read, we imagine that God does at the end of the three hours from nine to noon, judging the whole world. 
Here, it's the shofar blast on high holidays that prompts God to stand up from one chair, the Elohim throne, which connotes Midat Hadin, the attribute of justice. And God moves to, I'm, I'm, I'm just sticking with the anthropomorphism here, the Midrash. And God moves to the throne of mercy, compassion, Dichtiv, as it says, Hashem, meaning the, the name of four letters, Bikol Shofar. All right. So God first goes up to sit down as Elohim, but then when God hit, hears the Shofar, God moves to the other throne and finish it up. God is filled with compassion on them, meaning us, Israel, and takes mercy on them and transforms the attribute of justice to um, compassion. So just as we had in the first Midrashic passage from Tractate Brachot about um, God's prayer, May my mercy triumph over my justice. Here we have a visual description of that. God actually gets up from one throne and goes to sits on the other throne, right? In the last Midrash we read, we said, well, God does that at noon because God's been judging for three hours and God just says, okay, if I'm just going to be strict judgment here, I'm going to destroy the whole earth. And therefore God chooses to not do that. So God stands up from the throne of judgment and goes to the throne of mercy. In this Midrash, it's prompted by the shofar blast. God hears the shofar blast, and God says, okay, I'm going to be compassionate to them. I'm not going to give them what they deserve. I'm going to get up from the throne of justice, and I'm going to get up, go to the throne of mercy. So I want to point out here, it's interesting, throughout these, um, let's call them dichotomies, justice means something like people getting what they deserve, okay? Um, it doesn't mean being nice. It doesn't mean I'll let you off the hook, right? Justice means, you know, I'm sorry. These are the sentencing guidelines and my hands are tied. God doesn't say my hands are tied. Okay. But these are the sentencing guidelines. Okay. So we have in human courts, I know what to say. I know, I know that I'm found guilty, but I'm throwing myself on the mercy of the court, right? It's an image that the court, the human court has an option, what does that image connote? The human court has an option to choose mercy, even though the person does not necessarily deserve mercy, right? So in those midrashim about God switching seats, it's not because we deserve it. It might be because of tshuva, it might be because of the shofar, okay? Uh, uh, Something that awakens God's mercy, that causes God to say, okay, I am not going to give people their just desserts. So I think the sages here are trying to work out something that we could look at from a couple of different vantage points. From one vantage point, we know that there's a whole long philosophical story from Job onwards about how come the, the flip side is it doesn't answer how come sometimes bad things happen to good people. But it's a try to respond. How come sometimes good things happen to bad people? So the answer is because God can be compassionate. God can choose to be compassionate. It's one answer. It's not the only answer. Okay. But it's an answer to the troubling question. 
And it's an, it's an answer to the troubling, uh, a response to the troubling thought of if we all got what we deserved, we'd worry about that. And so we're hoping that there's something, a force, a power, the sages describe it as an attribute of God. Okay. We hope that there's something that will make the outcome such that we won't get what we deserve. Because if we got what we deserved, um, well, maybe the world is 50% bad and maybe I'm 51% bad. Did I say 50% bad? 51. Maybe the world is 51% bad and maybe I'm 51% bad. And so I wouldn't want to get what I deserve. So I'm hoping that there is a force operating in the universe that gets me off the hook, that I don't get my just desserts. And this is God's compassion. And this is depicted by the sages as an internal, maybe if I use the word struggle, maybe that's a little bit too strong, an internal process within God. Okay? This thing that sometimes people get exactly what they do. They got his comeuppance, right? He got what he deserved. And sometimes people don't get their comeuppance. This might be, why is that? Well, this might be because God has free choice and God can choose to be compassionate. And when it comes to judging us, we hope that God chooses to be compassionate. How is this described? It's described in various creative images. Do they believe these creative images? I don't know. So one image of angels debating with each other. Another image of God saying, like a parent, gee, I hope I don't blow my top at that kid and that I'm able to get a hold of my temper and judge them charitably, as Larry was sort of suggesting, like a parent. Or um, God gets up from one throne and sits on a different throne. Whatever it is about that throne, it gets God in a better mood. Okay? Because we hope ultimately that even though we are limited, we fail, we sin, that God will either overlook our sins, throw them into the ocean, or wipe them away like a like a cloud. I think we would, when I think of wiping away, I'm thinking of like, you know, the, the eraser and the board, right? right. Um, so these are various ways of describing, uh, that the sages have of describing. It, they, they bring it down to, it's an internal process within God. God has different aspects, feelings, thrones, okay? It's a dynamic. God, but, but, but what, what this holds together, what, what runs through all of them is that God isn't static. God doesn't just do one thing. God changes. We actually say with that last shofar, um, Midrash, we hope that we are capable of changing what God chooses to do. We hope that we're able to do something that will God, that will get God to change the outcome of what God might otherwise do. It's extremely bold. Um, and again, you can say literarily playful. Do they really believe this? Of course, surely they couldn't have really believed this. I don't know. I think that's our very modern assumption. Oh, surely they couldn't have believed this literally. I don't know what they believe. And probably like today, different things, different people believe different things. And different people may have believed different things at different moments in their life. Okay, we have two minutes before I'm going to stop. Throwing over to open the floor for question comment. So, Larry, it's anthropomorphic and anthropopathic. 
anthropopathic. It's a hard word to say. Thoughts. Hmm, you don't have to have thoughts. I'll let you, I'll let you germinate your thoughts. Next week, we're not going to do Midat Hadina, Midat Arachamim. I'm actually going to try to put a couple more things in the thing. Maybe I won't post the thing today. Maybe I'll post it. Too. Um, and next week, we're going to look at other ways at uh, another way in which God is seen as internally varied. I guess I'll put it that way and not the same thing. Yep. Terry. So I'm, I'm processing everything we are, we're discussing. And one of the things that I keep getting back to is the, the, the very interesting change from the four generations who suffer to all these other opportunities, options. And um, I don't know if we have time or can discuss that more, but it, I, and I know we don't have time now, but yeah. I find that fascinating. Yeah. Um, short answer is yes. It's really because in the Bible, we saw it in Micha. I yeah. will bring you Ezekiel. I'll also bring in the passage from Isaiah. We have in the Bible prophetic passages which show that um, people are capable of repentance and God can wipe out sin. Okay, so this seems to suggest a different view of, let's call it, reward and punishment, okay, right. than what it says in the Torah's passage of Kitisa. Right. Of course, you can harmonize them by saying, well, God remembers the sin for four generations only if people don't repent. But even if people don't repent, it's only for four generations, right? It's not forever, right? The, the love is remembered for the doing mitzvot is remembered forever, whereas doing sins is only remembered for four generations. Then there's a reset button. But again, there are other passages. Ezekiel in particular says, no, every person can do the reset button in their own life. So I think this is the sage's way, Hazal's way of looking at biblical passages that seem superficially to contradict each other, they make they don't have a historical assumption. Well, the Bible evolved. First, they thought that reward and punishment worked this way, but then later generations thought that it involved that way. They they didn't have a historical conscious like consciousness like that. Okay, they have to make it all unitary and make everything agree. How is it possible? Ah, well, there are attributes of judgment, attributes of mercy. These are is an internal process within God, and God is the one who can change. Okay, if you change, God changes in response to that. All right. Thanks, 901. Stay healthy. Stay dry. Be Torah. God willing. See you next week. Thank you. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am, Los Angeles, go to tba.org.